you, Jay. <clears throat> well, good morning. Glad you all are here. Hope you have your Bibles out, and uh, if you don't, now is a great time to do that. Uh, there should be some Bibles scattered in the pew backs in front of you. You can uh, follow along in your own text, or you can follow uh, along as we look at select verses from Daniel chapter 4, uh, the scripture that we just had read for us. Let's uh, pray as we're gathering our Bibles, and uh, then we'll dive in. Father, thank you for the morning. It is good for us to be here, to be reminded that you are our creator, God, um, that you have always existed as Father and Son and Holy Spirit, uh, existing uh, for all eternity. Um, and, and then in Genesis 1-1, you said, um, uh, let it happen, and it happened. And, and you spoke this creation uh, into existence with your power and might. And uh, we humbly acknowledge you as our creator and as our good life giver. Father, we also recognize, um, despite what, uh, what we heard from Stephen Hawking, that there is no God and that he, he, he is not in control of it. We see from this scripture and many others, Father, that it is quite the opposite, that you not only exist, but that you are the sovereign one that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and you not only uh, created this entire world, uh, but that you rule over it. You are all-powerful and almighty, and you indeed are in control. And we are your uh, creatures, and we need to learn this lesson. And so we pray this morning as we take a look at the idol of control. Lord, teach us these things, we pray. And God's people said, Amen. Well, the story is told of uh, three guys, and uh, the three guys were uh, eating together in the local pub, and uh, two of the men began to brag about the amount of control that they exercised over their wives, boasting story after story after story. And all the while, the third man just sort of uh, remained silent. He was just listening to them boasting. And after a while, one of the uh, two men turned to the third man and he said, well, what about you? What kind of stories do you have about the control that you exercise over, over your wife? And the third man responded, well, I'll tell you uh, how much. Just the other night, my wife came to me on her hands and knees. The first two guys were amazed, you know, big-eyed, and they said, well, tell us what happened. Uh, the third man replied, she said to me this, get out from underneath the bed and fight like a man. <laughs> You know, some of us, I think, uh, like the first two men, live in a fictitious world under the guise that we have ultimate control, while other of us uh, are, are more like the third man here. We face the fact that we have limited control and that we are ultimately under the control of another. That's what King Nebuchadnezzar learned in our story this morning from Daniel chapter 4. We're going to see a man who goes from being like the first two men in the bar to the third. From a man who thought that he possessed all sovereignty. And I would suggest to you that he was sipping on the salt water of control. To a man who experienced God's living water and comes to recognize that God is the one with ultimate, I will call it, big C control. So if you don't have your Bibles open, let's turn now to Daniel chapter 4. We will be looking at select verses of this rather lengthy chapter. And let's begin with Nebuchadnezzar's struggle and his triumph over the idol of control. First of all, seeing uh, control as an idol, as a little g god. 
But uh, Nebuchadnezzar is not the only one who struggles with the idol of control. Brian uh, is a financial advisor, and he works for a very reputable investment firm. And uh, despite that, there was a morning that was kind of a rough morning for him. In fact, he had uh, what he described in his words, a panic attack, uh, simply after reading the morning headline in the New York Times. And the New York Times headline simply read, Trump triumphs. Trump triumphs. Of course, this was the news path, uh, newspaper after the day uh, that now President uh, Trump was elected. Now, he didn't go into a panic attack because he, he liked or disliked Trump. No, because... See, he was a financial advisor, and any new president meant uncertainty, which meant, of course, stock market uh, volatility. See, he felt like in that moment, in his own words, uh, my life was spinning out of control. I, I couldn't control the markets, he said, and I couldn't control my clients' reactions. See, Brian, like many of us, was sipping on the salt water of control. Bill also sips on the salt water of control. He spends, oh, five to six hours every day cleaning his studio apartment. Now, obviously, he struggles with OCD, but underneath the surface idol of cleanliness, let's say, lies the heart idol of control, control over his living space, and thus he thinks control over his life. Let me tell you about Susan. Susan uses every ounce of her free time from work to be on as many dating websites as she can find, as she obsessively scrolls through the profiles of men that she thinks could be her future husband. See, underneath her desire to be married is the idol of control. That is control she thinks she can exercise over her future marital status. Lisa works out, but she not only works out, she works out a lot, seven days a week for a whopping three hours a day, and she's anxious if she, if she misses one of her works at workouts. Now, her obvious idol, which is sort of physical fitness, I think reveals a deeper, deeper idol, the idol of control over her body. Now, these are just examples that I think make the point that Steve Hopp makes in his book. He says this control worshipers are often are often worshiping an idol an obvious idol other than control. He writes, but if you be, if you dig deep enough, control is at the heart of their idolatry. Friends, I think this was true not only for these folks, it's not only true for us, but it's true for King Nebuchadnezzar as well. Because he was the greatest king of the land in Daniel's day. And the obvious idols, which you would think of that would come uh, with a position like this, the idols of power and of prestige and of uh, possessions, um, I think the text lends to the fact that all of these were sort of funneled into what was the undergirding idol of control in this man's life. Did you notice some of the repeated language that we heard as Jay read for us Daniel chapter 4? We heard words like dominion and kingdom and sovereignty and rule. Each of these are revealing to us that the core idol for Nebuchadnezzar was the idol of control. 
Take a look at your Bibles, if you will. I just want to do some summarizing, and then we'll look at some specific verses. I want to demonstrate this to you. The chapter begins in a rather unusual format in verses 1 and 2. Because here we have, uh, in Scripture, a pagan king uh, recording for us uh, sort of a royal edict, right? He's writing a letter to everyone in the known world, to everyone in his kingdom. And, And he says he wants to tell everyone about what Israel's God had done for him. So this is a rather unusual section of scripture, right? Here is a pagan king writing what ends up in the Bible, but we have some things to learn from what he is going to say, not only to the subjects in his kingdom, but to you and I as well. Notice, then in verse 3, Nebuchadnezzar shares what is the point of the story that he is about to tell. He, he tells us, if you will, the lesson that he learned up front, right? He's going to tell us his experience, but he tells us before that, this is the point. This is what I learned through the signs and the wonders that God has done for me. Uh, look again at verse 3. He writes, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now what the king learned was that God's kingdom uh, is eternal, right? It lasts forever. And not only is God's kingdom eternal, but what does he say about God's power, about God's control? He says God's dominion also endures forever. Next, if you'll take a look at your text, you will see in the next section, starting in verse 4, And running all the way into verse 17, he goes on to speak about the dream. I'll just summarize it for us. We just heard it in our scripture reading. So he has a dream, and he dreams uh, in his vision of a large tree, right? A tree that goes all the way to the heavens. And this large tree provides shade and food and nourishment for all the animals of the earth. And then he goes on to say in his dream that he saw a holy one from heaven, right? There is an angel from heaven that proclaims that the tree is to be chopped down, leaving only the stump to remain. And then the angel goes on to say that the man um, who, whom the tree represents is essentially going to lose his mind. He's going to go crazy, and he is going to act uh, like a wild animal, if you will, for a period of seven years. If you take a look at verse 17 in your Bible with me, the angel makes the purpose of this seven-year hiatus very clear. Verse 17. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict. So that, here's the point, right? So that the living, namely Nebuchadnezzar, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. What is the angel telling both Nebuchadnezzar and me and you about control? Well, he's essentially saying that God is in control, big C control, over the kings of the earth and over their kingdoms. Every single 
one of them, including Nebuchadnezzar. And that though they have a certain measure of control, the kings and the kingdoms of their, they have a certain measure of control, it is a borrowed control. Or you could think of it this way. It's a control that is exercised under God's big C control. It's true of kings. It's true of kingdoms. And friend, it's, it's true of, of me and you. It's true of our lives as well. He goes on to say that the king will act like an animal for seven years until, until notice verse 25 in your text, until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. See, Nebuchadnezzar was sipping on the salt water of control. He was the king. Uh, He had a great measure of authority, a great measure of control, not only over his life, but over the lives of thousands, of hundreds of thousands of people uh, over his kingdom, which was uh, rather extensive during that particular time. So, He exercised a certain measure of control, but he was living as if he was absolutely in control. He was living like he was absolutely sovereign over his life and over his kingdom. Verse 27, take a look there. Verse 27 tells us that what this meant. The king was doing all sorts of evil. He was doing all sorts of uh, unjust things. In short, he was living like he didn't have to answer to anyone. He was living like he was in control. And no one could tell him otherwise. Friends, God intended to teach him a lesson. And God wants us, through him, to learn a lesson about ultimate control. Amazingly, as we keep reading, right, we have this vision recorded for us, and we we see the interpretation of the dream, and Daniel tells him what the dream means and, and what's going to happen to him, and he begs for the king to repent, does he not? And despite all of that, we see 12 months later what happens. Right? Flash forward from the vision, 12 months later, we see the king in verse 29 uh, saying some astounding things. Verse 29, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, which, by the way, was magnificent. Verse 30, he said to himself, Is not this the great Babylon I have built? as the royal residence, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? So friends, let me just ask you a quick question. Did the king take the dream to heart? Did he learn the lesson that God wanted him to learn through the vision and its interpretation? Shake your head no. No, he did not learn the lesson, right? God gave him the vision. It was sort of like an academic lesson. God wanted him to learn before there had to be an intervention. But he didn't learn. He was not humbled. And so we learn as we continue to read that God had to intervene, that God had to humble him. Obviously, he did not learn the lesson. And if we were honest, I think we would admit that this is a hard lesson for us to learn as well. See, we too, like King Nebuchadnezzar of old, have a deeply rooted longing 
to be in control over our lives. Friends, we're not all that different from Him. We are like Him. We think like Him, even if we're not a king. In fact, Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, insightfully writes on this point. He says this. He says, The original temptation in the Garden of Eden was to reset the limits God had put on us and to seek to be as God by taking power over our own destiny. We gave in to this temptation and now it is a part of our nature. Friends, isn't that true? Rather than accept our finitude and dependence on God, we desperately seek ways to assure ourselves that we still have power over our own lives. But then he writes these words, But this is an illusion. This is an illusion. And friends, Nebuchadnezzar was about to learn that it was an illusion. Because what we see in verses 31 through 33 is that the king finds out that he is not sovereign, right? That, that he is not absolutely in control. As he loses his mind and lives for seven years uh, the bovine life, if you will, right? He acts like a wild ox for seven years. Thankfully, thankfully, at the end of the seven years, the king this time did learn his lesson. And so we moved then from the salt water of little sea control that the king was sipping on to the living water of God's, what I will call, big sea control. Nebuchadnezzar did learn his lesson. Take a look, starting at verse uh, 34, if you will. What did he learn after being humbled in such a way? What did he learn from God's intervention? What did he learn from God bringing an experience and a circumstance into his life that was out of his control? What did he learn? Verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? Oh, friends, this is rich. And it's amazing that God in His grace, through the writings and the experience of a pagan king, would teach us such good theology, right? Remember those commercials? You can learn a lot from a dummy, right? You can learn a lot from a pagan king because the words of this pagan king are true. We learn about God. So what do we learn? What do we learn? Friends, I would suggest that we learn the lesson that he learned. That is, that whatever little c control that we exercise, and we do, and we'll see that in a moment, that whatever little c control that we exercise over our lives, that God's big c control trumps it. We learn that God does as He pleases. 
with the, did you catch the language? With the unlimited power that he possesses, and he exercises that unlimited power over all the peoples of the earth. Let me ask you, are you a person? Shake your head, yes. Do you live on the earth? Shake your head, yes. Is that talking about you? Shake your head, yes. Is it talking about me? Absolutely, yes. God exercises his unlimited power over all the peoples of the earth. In other words, we are not in ultimate control over our lives. I love what the king says in verse 35. Hone in, if you will, in your text towards the end of verse 35. Notice what he says. He uses this image. It's a great image. No one can hold back his hand. What's the image there? What's the image? No one can hold back his hand. The idea is that if God wants to do something, that he's going to do it, right? And that no one with their meager attempt can hold back his powerful right hand from doing what he wants. That's, that's the imagery. Um, occasionally, uh, I, I play a game with my children, uh, with Dever sometimes, and with the olders. I used to play this maybe more often. But we would play a, a game, and it, it's simply called the Tickle Monster Game. So I'm letting you into my household here, right? Uh, uh, the Tickle Monster Game. And uh, my right hand right here is the Tickle Monster. Here it is, in all of its glory. Tickle Monster. The way the game works is Tickle Monster Game. And so the Tickle Monster, if they're over there, creeps. He creeps closer to them, and I build the anticipation, right? And the tickle monster strikes, and then I tickle them, right? And they laugh and they giggle, right? The tickle monster goes where he pleases. The tickle monster does what he wants. The tickle monster um, has power. And occasionally, what they may do is they may try to stop the tickle monster. They may try to grab the tickle monster with their hands and stop him. Um, Do you think that they are successful in doing that? What is? No, they are not. Because the tickle monster is stronger than they are. The tickle monster is sovereign, if you will. See, uh, they cannot hold back my hand. Got the picture? They can't hold back my hand. It's the same with God's hand. In our lives. We can't hold it back. Then he says something else. He says not only can no one hold back his hand. But no one can ask him this question. Did you notice? What's the question? What have you done? God what have you done? While we may question why God has done things. God, why have you done this? God, why have you allowed this? We cannot question his right to do it. So we should not be surprised then when, like he did to Nebuchadnezzar, God intervenes in our lives in such a way that demonstrates beyond a shadow of the doubt that we are not ultimately in control. What do we see? How was God breaking King Nebuchadnezzar from his idolatry of control? What did he do in Nebuchadnezzar's life? He brought a circumstance into his life that was beyond his control, did he not? To demonstrate that he was not in control. 
Now, that was a rather extreme intervention. I hope I don't see any of you in the pasture out here on hands and knees acting like cows, right? I hope God doesn't have to do that in my life. I hope He doesn't have to do it in your life. But friends, God will bring circumstances into our lives to demonstrate to us that He is in control. And that any, um, any thought, any misled idea that we are ultimately in control is wrong. It may be an unexpected illness. It may be a loss in job or a shift in employment. It could be a problem with one of our kids, developmental or educational or, or relational. It could, it could be the loss of, of a loved one. There's all sorts of things that God often does into, and brings into our lives because he wants us to learn the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. Friends, God will bring into our lives what he needs to bring into it to break us from the idol of control. And friends, hear me. This is God's grace to us. God was being gracious to King Nebuchadnezzar because what was more important, that King Nebuchadnezzar exercised control and and lived like the normal life, or was it more important that he be humbled, even though he had to go through seven pretty rough years, to learn the lesson that God wanted him to learn? This was God's grace to King Nebuchadnezzar. And friends, when God does similar things in our life, it is his grace to us to unearth the deep-rooted idol of control in our lives. I love what Steve Hopp in his book says. He's right on when he says these words. He says, we should take control over the world around us and over ourselves. It is our responsibility and our privilege as human beings created in God's image. We just don't have ultimate control, he says, over anything. God has the final say in all things. He controls how long you live and how many kids you will have. He controls when your hair turns gray and when it falls out. He controls if you get sick and if you recover. He controls how much money you make and how many promotions you get. He gives life and he takes it away. He is in charge of it all and we are not. And so he poses an interesting question. He writes, how then do we live in a world in which we have control but God, capital, has control? He writes, there's no cookie cutter formula but there is a posture that we can always take. He writes, the prayerful, open-handed, not as I will, but as you will, posture. Of course, he's referring to the posture of Jesus in the garden. And then he writes these helpful words. The true test of whether you're sipping the salt water of control is this. Can you pray the very same prayer? And that's a good test, is it not? That we can face whatever circumstances comes our way and we can pray as Jesus prayed, God, not my will, but yours. And if we can, then we're on the right trajectory towards weaning ourselves off the salt water of control and exchanging it for God's living water. But before we close, there is a third option, 
a third option we can take, another flavor, if you will, of salt water, of the idol of control. We've seen that King Nebuchadnezzar was sipping on the salt water of control. We, we, we saw that God opened his eyes to the living water of his big sea control. But there is a third option, and I will call it the salt water of chaos. The salt water of chaos. Uh, I don't know if you are a basketball fan, either a serious one or maybe a, a just sort of a periodical one. But if you have been watching or keeping track of this year's NCAA men's basketball tournament, uh, then you realize how crazy and unpredictable it has been. Uh, just case in point, in this year's NCAA tournament, for the first time ever, a 16 seed, which is the lowest seed, uh, knocked off a number one seed. It has never happened ever before, and this year it happened. In fact, one uh, college basketball expert analyst from ESPN, uh, in an interview that he gave, uh, called this year's NCAA basketball tournament, quote, pure chaos. Pure chaos. In basketball fans, if you're a basketball fan, isn't that why you love the NCAA tournament? That's why we love it, right? Because there's potential for late-game drama and stunning upsets. We pull for Loyola Chicago, right? Because they are just advancing well beyond what anybody would have thought. You could say we love it because it's pure chaos. Friends, um, that's the way some people want their lives to be. It's probably the minority, not many people are like this, but some of us love our lives to be pure chaos. Instead of idolizing control, they idolize a lifestyle of unpredictability and change and drama. They love it. They long for it. They thrive off of it. They get their fix, if you will, from it. Take Sean. For example, a real-life person, uh, I want to quote uh, just a, a tidbit of an article that he gave. He was, and I presume still is, um, a heroin addict. And he, uh, according to his own words, has, has been for a number of years in and out of rehab facilities. In his own words, he describes what I will call the salt water of chaos. And I quote, I'm a screw-up. That's just who I am. I'm used to being out of control. I'm used to the drama. I'm used to getting into fights. I'm used to being addicted to coke. I'm used to having no control over my life. It's the world I know I'm comfortable in it. Sounds like the salt water of chaos to me. And then he speaks about why he left most recently the rehab facility that he had spent about, I think it was three or four or five months solid in and in, in the progress he was making. And he said this, quote, I wasn't used to the success, to the progress or the praise. I felt like I was in a foreign country and I wasn't supposed to be there. So I bolted. Friends, what about you? Could it be possible that you drink from the sister salt water, not of control, but maybe of, of chaos? No, it probably will take a less extreme form in your life and in my life than it does in Sean's, but we can still drink it just the same. Maybe you love the, the thrill of entering into new relationships 
only to exit from that relationship to pursue the next one. Or maybe you stay in what you know is a really unhealthy relationship because you're drawn to the excitement and the unpredictability that it brings. Uh, maybe if you look at your, your calendar, it's chock full of stuff. Maybe if you get your iPhone out or your Android out and you look at your calendar, there's markings and colors all over the place. And you and your family are crazy busy all of the time. Every hour is accounted for. And if you are honest, your life feels chaotic. It's chaotic. And you've driven it to be that way. You're running yourself ragged because the activity... Man, you just love the thrill of it. You can't stand having an afternoon without anything on your calendar. Maybe it's, it's a habit. Uh, take gambling, for example, right? It's, there's the rush of anxiety, the thrill that it provides. Maybe it's some sort of substance abuse, whether that be drugs or legal uh, legal drugs, illegal drugs, alcohol, um, because you just quite, if you were just honest, you love the idea, you, you, you thrive off the, the, the feeling that you cannot control your body. You can't control your words. And you can't control uh, what you say and what you think and what you do. You, you're, you're sipping on the salt water of the chaotic state that it brings into your life. See, we don't have to be like Sean to worship at the altar of chaos. So friends, we have three options. We can treat control as a god, little g-god, and idolize it like Nebuchadnezzar was doing. We could treat it as garbage and demonize it and serve the salt water of chaos like these folks, like Sean. Um, or we can treat it as a gift from God to be used in faith that whatever control we have over our lives, we exercise it knowing that we are exercising it under God's big C control. I want to end with a story. It's a story by a man known to his family simply as Uncle Oscar. Uncle Oscar. Now, Uncle Oscar was in his uh, mid to late 70s, and he had never uh, flown on an airplane before until he finally took his very first airplane ride. And so his family, of course, was waiting for him there at the airport to pick him up, and they eagerly uh, awaited his his uh, arrival because they wanted to know how his first flight was. And so when he arrived, they asked him, how was it, right? How was it, Uncle Oscar? And then he said these words, quote, well, it wasn't as bad as I thought it might be, <clears throat> but I tell you this, I never did put all my weight down. Just think about that. I never did put all my weight down in that seat. Beloved, whether we realize it or not, we are putting all of our weight down as we ride in the airplane that is God's creation and his universe. We can choose to recognize it or we can choose to deny it like good old Uncle Oscar. But the truth remains in Nebuchadnezzar's words of God He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. Let's pray. Father, we're so very grateful for the story that you have preserved for us from King Nebuchadnezzar's life. And Lord, there is much for us to learn from him, from his experience. And Lord, we pray for our own hearts and our own lives. We are prone to idolize control. 
We want to think that we are absolutely in control of every aspect and every element and every circumstance and every event that comes into our lives. And there are times when we need to be humbled, as King Nebuchadnezzar was humbled, to recognize the glorious truth that whatever control you have given us as human beings, that we exercise it under your control. And that is good news. Because you are good, and you are God, and you are powerful and wise, and great and mighty, and that you are moving all of history, including our individual lives, for the advancement of your glory, so that we might be conformed into your Son's image. And so we pray that you would root out any idols of control in our hearts and in our lives, and that you would take whatever measures necessary to do it, though it may pain us, we pray, so that we can learn the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned. We pray in God's name, in Christ's name, and all God's people said, amen. See you next week, guys.